0: Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Richard Florida. He's an author and thinker, and we're going to be talking about the way cities are changing. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, I have Richard Florida. He's the author of The New Urban Crisis, uh, How Our Cities Are Increasing Inequality, Deepening Segregation, and Failing the Middle Class, and What We Can Do About It. And he's also a university professor and the Directors of Cities at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management and Distinguished Fellow at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. You're also an editor, editor-at-large at Atlantic City Lab, and you are probably one of the cooler people that I get to talk to on this thing. So thank you for joining me, Richard.
1: That, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
0: so you're, you've always been you've been a favorite of mine for the, for the past. You've been writing for on this specific thing for a little over a decade, right?
1: Yeah, well, I've been, I've been actually, Rise of the Creative Class, my first main book on cities, per se, came out in 2002. But, you know, I've, I've been a professor, believe it or not, this sounds amazing to me, since 1984, yeah. uh, and wrote a series of books on economic competitiveness in the early 90s. But it was really in the early 2000s um, that I began to focus, you know, m- more, I, I'm an urban planner, urban planner by training, but began to focus my writing more specifically on, on cities,
0: and if the podcast. What we're going to be talking about today is how cities can help themselves. Your book's title uh, is a bit of a downer. Is there? Is, are, are we going to be okay on this? Are we going to survive this podcast? Or is there I, are, doubtful?
1: Are, highly doubtful. <laughs> I've, I've gone from being an, um, a wonderfully optimistic person to being, you know, I. I uh, I'm in my 50s now, so I have to be depressed until I turn 69 and wonderfully regain happiness, according to the most recent studies. No, but I... um... You know, I think anytime you have to confront the election of Donald Trump as president of the most important country in the free world, you, you have to temper your optimism a little. But um, I do think, you know, I think in the book I say something, I can't remember it exactly, but, you know, crisis is a, a moment of great challenge, but also a moment of great opportunity. And, you know, my, my dad long deceased now, you know, but, but uh, a veteran of the New Deal, a veteran of World War II, a working class guy always said, you know, you'd be amazed at how fast America a very proud American, Italian American could turn around. Uh, And I think the book is really my wake up call, but hopefully a wake up call to cities, especially great cities like San Francisco and New York and London uh, that we better get our act together because we're we're headed down a road that if we don't get our act together, we, we may, we may screw up, you know, Uh, what your title of your your podcast this Mm -hmm. kind of technologically driven world we may screw up the best innovative asset we have our cities if we don't get our act together now
0: okay so at the at the risk of not encouraging people to buy the book and you really should buy the book this is one of my favorite reads uh this year um what can cities do i've been i've been traveling i've been traveling the world i've been doing uh trying to support entrepreneurship everywhere I called myself the East Coast editor of TechCrunch for a long time, and I said the East Coast was everywhere else in the world uh, outside of San Francisco. So what can a city like uh, St. Louis, what can a city like Ljubljana, what can a city like uh, Scranton do to make sure that it's important on the world stage, uh, or at least that it
1: survives? So first off, to all listeners out there, do not buy the book. It'll be a waste <laughs> of your money. <laughs> Go read it. Read the excerpts online.
0: No, oh, read God, the book. Do,
1: not, do not send that to basic books, my Lord. Um, um, so a, a couple of things just by way of preface. Um, first, I think one thing I've learned uh, over the course of these couple of decades studying cities is, you know, I was my earlier work was really studying innovation and entrepreneurship. I wrote a lot about that as way back as the 1980s, uh, somehow some university tenured me for that, unfortunately for them. But, um, I actually went out in, the, in those days and went out and visited the Valley, uh, went up to Boston and Route 128. I interviewed, unfortunately, I didn't take a tape recorder. What an idiot. I interviewed, and I have notes from interviewing all of the great original generation of, of venture capitalists. And, um, um and and so I got to know innovation as something that you know companies do and startups do and studied the great students theorists of innovation like Joseph Schumpeter, but as I got older and began to rediscover my love of cities and rediscovered the work of the great late Jane Jacobs, I really just tried to marry uh, what Joseph Schumpeter and people who studied innovation think about startup firms to understanding that really the motor of innovation isn't the company; it's these cities, these clusters, if you will, that are the platforms for innovation. You know, Jane, Jane Jacobs would have said it's when people and talent and, and economic assets and universities and knowledge institutions mesh in a city uh, that you get the dynamic required for innovation and startup and entrepreneurship. The daunting thing, however, uh, that your question raises is unfortunately, um, the, even though we've invoke the idea that the world would become flatter. That the the rest would rise, we would see the rise of the rest. Unfortunately, over the past two decades, we've actually seen innovation and startups become more concentrated by geography. And I talk about this in the book. Um, at in in 1990, San Francisco accounted for about 22 percent of all startups. Uh, as of you know, a couple of years ago, San Francisco was nearly half of all startups. If if you take uh, the Bay Area and the Boston, New York, Washington sell a corridor you know you've got like two-thirds of all startups in the united states and the only place you know you mentioned being east coast editor the only place that's really seen a market increase in startup activity and venture capital investment is is new york a place that no one would have when i did my early research new york city had a lot of venture capital that shipped out to the valley it shipped over to route 120 it didn't have a single startup a tech startup had other kinds of startups so i want to be optimistic about that but but it's a, it's a hard one and I think we could, I could point to two places that have done interesting things to improve their game. one is Pittsburgh where I lived for nearly two decades um, which after a long hard slog loss of steel loss of heavy industry has now begun to build a very interesting new economy around self-driving vehicles and the other place which is less a startup economy but very interesting is Nashville. Um, which actually has built a very interesting economy around music, musical innovation, new musical forms, uh, attracting interesting bands, not just in country, but in rock, around musicianship. So I think the real thing for, for places that are outside of the, you know, the spikes that I like to call them, these big clusters, is you've got to pick something really unique. You can't just try to be the next Silicon anywhere. You've got to really focus on something different that no one else does, and you've got to really kill it. You know, you've really got to be great at it. and if you do that, you have a shot. But I think it, it, it is a – one of the things I do think is that the world has become spikier. And in the book, I call it, you know, we know we live in a winner-take-all economy. I also think we live in a winner-take-all geography where the distance, if you will, the economic and social distance between the winners and the losers is getting bigger. And you know, that indeed is what's causing the backlash that we're seeing in our politics and the rise of populism and all of this. So, so I want to be optimistic about it, but it's a hard slog. Okay.
0: So – I, I was I was just in Pittsburgh uh, a few days ago and that's become RoboBurg, and I I yeah. went to Carnegie Mellon it was uh, it was it was back in 97 and now when I go back I, it's you can hardly recognize the place it's basically full of self-driving cars and uh and uh, cool restaurants which is fascinating that, that we didn't have that before um, so you're saying that a specific area has to specialize it's so. really
1: interesting. Uh, Pittsburgh in the book, Rise of the Creative Class*, I called it my base case. I lived there from 1987 to 2004. And it's when we did the book launch event uh, recently, Tom Murphy, the former mayor, uh, one of the mayors who put Pittsburgh on the track, he said publicly, and it was really amazing to me. He said, Richard, I remember the day you came to my office. I was just a kid at the time. Tom was a very young man. He said, you told us <laughs> that universities and knowledge institutions were important for innovation and economic development. We laughed you out of the office. We just thought you were from the moon. So I think it was a long process of understanding from myself, from other people, uh, from talented people, that it was that it was no longer just going to be stadiums and convention centers and old line industries and downtown retail. It really was a fight, and I I, I really. I have the bruises to prove it it really was a fight people didn't want to believe this they thought Carnegie Mellon was a place nerdy people went and over time though that fight you know people came around if you're persistent if you say you know I happen to teach at the best I believe this uh, I think Carnegie Mellon is the best technical university in the world pound for pound MIT and Stanford are larger but pound for pound the people I met there were (laughs) off the chart brilliant look at
0: me wow
1: and so, and so, you know, I think the fight was fought and for many years, Carnegie Mellon, you know, those, the Robo Berg was ignored, you know, even I, with all of my prescience, when I would see the robotic tanks driving around in the drive, I'd be like, what lunatic could think that's going to be a market, you know, a robotic <laughs> tank. And you, but I think that's the wonderful thing about having a great university. You never know. I could have never predicted. I remember the first time Raj Reddy told me, you know, Richard, we're going to have an environment in which computing power is going to be there, anytime, any place, anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm I'm now typing then on my 286 IBM machine, going, he's completely lunatic. But I think a great university with great visionaries provides that, and and ultimately, it was that ab- ability of Carnegie Mellon to do very out of the box things that laid the seeds, and then of course. You know, Pittsburgh has this amazing environment, this industrial history, these warehouse buildings, these old factory buildings, spectacular neighborhoods, turn of the century neighborhoods, hills, you know, magnificent parks. And and finally, you know, it's affordable. So these young chefs and young people can, you know, you're not going to be a young chef in New York unless mom and dad bankroll your operation. So they could migrate to Pittsburgh. And, um, uh, you know, it's become really a place that is turning itself around and it finally is elected a spectacular mayor i mean bill peduto is is so incredibly brilliant you know guy i've known for nearly 20 years so i think it really becomes a model of how to do it but the point is that for listeners it really took a generation you know it it is a generational this is not overnight success this is a generation of hard work and fighting and and pushing and pulling and and ultimately everybody wants the best thing for their city but i think in, in this case pittsburgh really has turned the corner big time
0: so let's go let's go down uh, I70. What about what does Wheeling do?
1: Well, I mean I mean my view on this and I talk about this in the book is that even Pittsburgh, never mind Wheeling, one way to build on their strengths is to connect them better with transit and faster rail. You know, there's a, a remarkable study that came out from professors at the University of California at Berkeley and I believe at Chicago, which talked about the cost of land use restrictions. You know, restricting land use and building and in San Francisco and that how it's making housing prices go up, real estate prices. It's constraining innovation. It says all of this costs the U.S. economy about one and a half trillion dollars a year in lost output. And there's a footnote in that paper. Which is, but if, <laughs> if you build high speed rail and better transit to connect uh, San Francisco to outlying areas, it would have a, an effect that would far dwarf um, uh, uh, deregulating land use. You know, if, if Wheeling and Pittsburgh uh, were connected with fast transit to one another, moreover, if Pittsburgh was tr- connected with faster transit to New York or Washington, D.C., I think that's really going to help pull these outlying zones which where, where people may want to live, which are providing affordable housing, but don't have that economic dynamism. And then back to your original question. Look, I, I think every place has certain assets it can build on. And really, most places look past those assets. So one of the things Pittsburgh did, and maybe other places didn't, is Pittsburgh really started to take account of its assets, And look at its knowledge assets, look at its universities, look at biotech, software, robot, whatever, whatever it did. And I think most places don't, you know, they just go for quick fixes. So I think really doing and, and then figuring out what's really different. You know, we talked about this, that the kind of Nashville model or the Pittsburgh model, Pittsburgh was never going to compete straight up against Silicon Valley in the things Silicon Valley does well. It would never compete against Boston in the things Boston – New York couldn't do it. New York had to find new media, really, uh, new media to be its competitive edge. I mean, Pittsburgh stumbled into self-driving vehicles where they had real super expertise. Um, And I think that's what it really takes, just figuring out the things you do really well – and, and investing in them and making yourself a magnet for both knowledge institutions and talent and people you know, who will come. They, they will come to a place that's really good at something.
0: At the risk of belaboring the point, what does, what does a city like who, – who, who defines what that uh, focus of research is? Is it the university? Is it the mayor? Is it a small organization of, of folks who think this, this is the thing that has legs versus everything else?
1: So it's a, that's a super, super question. I, I, I just want to backtrack one second and say, you know, this really isn't rocket science. Um, the people who built the Boston a thing and who built Silicon Valley understood this. It was one guy, Frederick Terman, the, the great dean who was at uh, MIT and then decided he, he would go to Stanford when it was a backwater. Before there, I you mean, know, Hewlett and Packard were his students, you know. And he said, you have to build steeples of excellence. And if you build a steeple of excellence, now think about this. Boston was a declining textile and boot and shoe town with burned out factories around MIT at the time. Stanford was a bunch of orchards. There was nothing going on there. And Terman said, if you could build a steeple of excellence. So I think that's it, a steeple of excellence. And I think it's a two-part, given your question, a two-part thing. On the one hand, I think you want at the level of research or or, um, innovation or exploration to take as many bets as possible because you don't know what's going to hit. So a great university, Carnegie Mellon is Stanford. We could go on many of them. You just want people doing crazy things. And you don't want to say, let's focus on here or that. You know, when I went to Carnegie Mellon, Dick Siret was the president. And Angel Jordan was the provost. And they said something remarkable we just support smart people, and you know other universities may have thirty people working in a field. We might put two or three people together, and they can outproduce. And we don't care. We'll invent a new field. We'll take an industrial engineer and a computer science, or Richard, an urbanist like you, and pair that person with somebody in technology, and something cool will come of it. I mean, Herb was just Herb Simon, who was you know, a genius, and Dick Syrett's partner in understanding that you really made advances at where disciplines cross. So you make a zillion bets but i think once a bet starts to pay off that you know it's it's a simple venture capital model as you know better than me once a bet starts to pay off that's when you focus on it and and then i think it's when you need university support. You need financial support. You need support for the mayor, the chamber of commerce or its equivalent. You need space to be mobilized. Uh, you need to you need to really be vigorously activating around that. You need you know the quality of place to attract people. But I think you're doing both. You're both focusing on taking uh, both, both, spreading your bets and in, in, in investing in a zillion things that might happen, but looking for the stuff that starts to pop up and then focusing and driving your economy. And I think You know, Annalee Sextonian. you know, still her book on the valley is, is the best one. And, you know, what she said was the valley is so interesting. And now I would say the Bay Area. I'd actually make a coda on this, the Bay Area broadly. Uh, because San Francisco is actually the, the more interesting place right now than the Valley proper, um, that what it has done is taken so many bets that it can shift, you know, from semiconductors to personal computers to laptops to mobile to social, even uh, you, you know, the biotech. It really is taking bets all the time at a, across a wide variety of technologies. And that's why the place itself is so important. Because it's not just one technology field or one technology cluster or one firm or one university. It's this big, you know, stewing broth of a place of innovative and creative people that ultimately enable you to grow. And, and as, as certain things come up and certain things come down, uh, to progress, you know, across the years and the decades.
0: So the steeple of excellence. So, so I guess by the the question of that. This is all this is all beautiful stuff. The. Is it, it was the homebrew, homebrew Computer Club, a steeple of excellence, is, a, is an accelerator in St. Louis, that steeple of excellence. Is that sufficient uh, to create that sort of growth?
1: I'd rather have the Homebrew Computer Club if you ask me. I okay. mean, I think the Homebrew Computer Club is like Jane Jacobs on steroids. When she's mm-hmm. talking about a city, that's like Motown in music or that's like the San Francisco music scene in the 60s. It is that group of young iconoclastic and not young, you know, I'm using this in a, iconoclastic talent that says, you know, we are going to change the world and we are going to find a niche in this place and do it. I think, you know, the accelerator model, when it works uh, and adds, you know, particularly management talent and, and scarce resources and networks that can help, but it's really the homebrew computer club. It's really – and, and you know, I used to you, you, you tell this story all the time in Rise of the Creative Class, you know, about Pittsburgh versus the Valley. And, you know, here were jobs in Wozniak with hair down to their butt, ripped blue jeans, riding around, you know, in their van – going and trying to shop their idea of a personal computer and i actually interviewed i interviewed don valentine uh this must have been in about 1984 1985 and i i had no idea what i was asking him at the time because i hadn't come to this i was young and i said mr valentine why would you invest in these two kind of hippies uh (laughs) how what you know because he had his tie on and his shirt and he's sitting there kind of brooks brothers and he said you know richard people tend to look at the shell, but what's really important if you want to understand innovative people is don't get bogged down in the shell. Look at what's inside the shell. And the story I told is, imagine these two guys showing up at like the, you know, in the lobby of Mellon Bank. They would have been just, you know, the security guards would have escorted them out the door and said, get get out of here you two hippies. But I think it's that open-minded acceptance of the strange, the odd, the weird, the difference. Now, we've come a long way in that now. Uh, but, but I think it, it's something that's really important. So the homebrew club, the folks in the homebrew club, inventing these young kids with long hair trying to play Beatles music on their computer and whatever they were doing, hacking away, um, are are the kinds of people that really set the world afire. And then that's what places have to do. And I think, unfortunately, too many of the older cities didn't do that. They, they wanted somebody who fit in, fit the corporate mold. Uh, and I think, I think that's changing now. Though. That's changing radically and rapidly across our country. And places have become more accepting. And, and of course, to go back to the themes of the new urban crisis. The real limiting factor now in places like the Valley or San Francisco or New York is that the homebrew club people can't afford to live there, can't afford to find space there, can't afford to have a, a garage. The, the garage startup, you know, you think about yeah. that. Everything great in America started in a garage from the garage van to the garage startup. When the garage costs $2 million, you're not going to have a startup in the garage. You know, you're going to have a guy storing his vintage Porsche collection. So, mm-hmm. Um, I think the limiting factor is that very success of these places that, that with Jane, you know, Jane, Jane Jacobs had all of these incredible rubrics. But the one that I love best is, you know, new ideas require old buildings why does she say that because old buildings at least when she was writing were cheap and you Mm -hmm. could find cheap space and start your idea so i think i think that's the limiting factor and that's the factor now if if the big successful you know tech clusters don't wake up innovation clusters don't wake up then i think uh upstart places can begin to siphon off some of this talent
0: okay so what are some upstart places that folks that have you seen that that folks should start heading to
1: Well, you know, I think people do have more options now. Um, One thing, I don't want to be too daunting on this, but one thing that tends to happen is once a place becomes a center, let's use New York as an example for this. Um, Manhattan has become extraordinarily expensive and, you know. There are now dead zones there. If you go on the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, you go where the super rich are, they are really dead zones. And, you know, Jane's rubric for this was, when a place gets boring, Richard, even the rich people leave. Uh, And, you know, Soho, the place that, you know, I loved, in the East Village, have become consumption zones. They're not really production zones anymore. But interesting people haven't left. They they haven't gone en masse to Pittsburgh or Buffalo, or they've tended to go to Queens or to Brooklyn. Or to Jersey City or to Hoboken. So one of the things that happens is, is you get, you know, the, the metropolitan area, if you will, growing and, and things shifting. You see it in the Bay Area as well. Um, but, but I think some of the places that are, that are rather interesting, just looking at my data, I think Pittsburgh is fascinating. I, you know, look. Los Angeles, the development of Los Angeles and the West area of Los Angeles and downtown as a tech and creative center. Um, I spent part of the winter in Miami. What we've seen happen around the Wynwood district in in Miami. You know, you could talk about Houston. You could talk about what's happened in Detroit. Uh, I think though, one of the things that we have to watch in this country, and I'm going to write more about this, is with um, the thing that's really stimulated growth and innovation in our country is open immigration. You know, you know the statistics. Um, anywhere from a third to a half of our high-flying startup companies were had an, a new American, an immigrant on the founding team. And this, this is not just in our day. This goes back to Andrew Carnegie and Steele, a Scotsman. I think any attempt to really limit immigration or impose border restrictions or border walls, and uh, I don't just say this because I live here, Part of the year, but you, you, you I would keep an eye on Toronto because Toronto is a place now. You know, the university is quite great; it's a top twenty uh, in the world, top ten public. It is probably the world's leader in artificial intelligence. You could make that argument. If it's not the world's leader, it's in the top three. It has a big computer science program. It's very close to Waterloo with great excellence in engineering. Uh, it's a city that has a thousand acres along the waterfront to be de- developed right in the center core. Uh, you know, if, if and that's what I would watch if, 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 the, if we start to restrict immigration in America, uh, other cities, London, you know, London, even with the Brexit is in its expense is a place to watch. So what I would be worried about now for the first time in modern memory is is if we restrict immigration and hopefully we won't. Could some of the innovative urban impetus that has been U.S. focused for so long. Would you start to see some places outside the U.S. and it's not it's not a lot, right? It's London, it's Toronto, it's Vancouver, it's Montreal, it might be Sydney, it might be Berlin, it might be Amsterdam. It's not a hundred cities, but there's enough interesting cities with great universities, great knowledge institutions, great quality of life, and that could make themselves quite open, uh, that could could compete and start to change that game. So that's the thing I'm more. Worried about now? Does the do, do we get, do we now see a more open global competition around talent, innovation, and enterprise?
0: I mean, it seems that's it, that's absolutely true. The the, the fascinating thing is I'm, I keep telling folks uh, I was in Macedonia last week talking to startups, and the traditional way to get things done is you basically have to fly to the Valley and uh, and live there, and that's what all these guys think is going to happen. But I I would argue that there's there's ways to do it outside of that outside of that process, and I think those I think those ways are getting easier and easier, especially with the globalization of, of technology. A startup is a is a small business with global ambition, yep. and uh, and I can build a small business in Macedonia as well as I can in uh, in Palo Alto.
1: So let me let me take this in a different direction, an area that I've wanted to write a book for over a decade and haven't. I actually believe um, that when you look at this. The most interesting place to look is music and, and popular music. Um, I, I think that music is, in many ways, a model, a way to look, a focus of that analytic. That you could look at popular music and what happens there in terms of digitization, in terms of global markets, in terms of startup, and, and then what happens in music tends to migrate and, and technology, high technology is next. And let me give you two examples. One I mentioned is Nashville. You know, how Nashville, which was an outlier, kind of hillbilly music, how Nashville very strategically as a community with a great mayor named Carl Dean, another great mayor now, Megan Barry, said, look, we can take this music thing because we have excellent studios and excellent radio stations and we have excellent musicians and we can scale around it. So, yes. It's going to be hard to compete against the best of the best New York, Los Angeles, London. But they did it. You know they've they've now, in terms of growth in the music industry, accounted for most of it. You know, now l a and New York still have more of it in London, but Nashville is a real player. Um, the other thing I would look at is Toronto. And, you know, I tell Americans this all the time. You know not just just they may know Justin Biebers from Canada, but who cares? You know, uh, this guy named Drake, who in many other decades would have moved to New York or L.A. or London, decided that Toronto was his home, that he wanted – there's a great quote from Drake where he says, you know, his dad's American, his mom's Canadian. We'd go visit his dad in Memphis, and he would see all these Americans bragging about how cool Memphis was in a music scene and their sports team. And he said, you know, my town's just as cool, and the Raptors are just as much fun as your basketball team. And I wanted, and you know, this whole thing of the six for the area codes. So now the weekend comes up in Toronto. And Toronto now, you know, don't get me wrong. Drake goes to New York, and he goes to L.A., and he goes to Miami or wherever he needs to go. But he's still now a Torontonian-based more or less out of Toronto, engaged, just like you said about your Macedonian startup. So I, I do think looking at music... Um, which is an even more concentrated industry than tech, you can see this. You can see scenes bubbling up in Austin. You can see scenes bubbling up a uh, 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 hip-hop scene in Atlanta and, and clusters of real excellence in specific genres. Now, don't get me wrong. New York and L.A. and London have many more genres that they compete in of music. But still, you can see these places picking off genres of music and really excelling. So I think you're right. And if music is is, is a, a way to, a lens into this, I think you can see more of this because obviously to make a startup, you no longer, you know, to make a startup 50 years ago when when Andy Grove and the, and the guys built Intel, you had to build manufacturing, right? You had to build a vertically integrated company with a lot of investment. Now to build a startup, you need a good idea and a computer and some really talented people and, and you can scale very quickly. So so I think you're right. You can do it many places and then the, the but the real point is to make that place a hub, you've got to continue to do it. You've got to continue to be able to attract the talent, the new startups, the new generations. You've got to continue to be able to iterate and grow that thing not only in that technology field but across technology fields and that's when it gets harder.
0: All right. Well, I think hope I think we actually closed an optimistic note. That was a, I think that was a good You you didn't you didn't say we're all going to die. So I think that's I think we I think we've achieved something in this podcast.
1: You know, you and I both have young kids. So we (laughs) have to be. Absolutely. But but I think, look, I I close this book and I say I my optimism has been tempered. You know, I I moved to Toronto. I never thought Toronto would elect the crack mayor, anti-urban mayor. I never thought America would be so divided it would elect Trump. And what worries me, what worries me is that urbanism and technology are what make us great. Great cities, great technology, equal great innovation, great entrepreneurship, economic dynamism. I'm worried because now for the first time we have a little bit of an anti-tech thing going on. You know, these people who say they want to kick the tech companies out of San Francisco. And we have a big anti-urban thing. You know, the cities are the places that are ruining our country, our own family values. But I say in the book, look, any big economic revolution comes with a backlash, The Industrial Revolution came with a horrible backlash. I think, you know, we may be in a pause, but ultimately, I think this logic of urbanism and innovation and clustering and concentration will continue. And I think we'll figure it out. And the reason I think we'll figure it out is because cities are big, complicated, economically messy and politically messy places. But if I look at the places that are most progressive, if you will, economically and politically, they're all the same places like New York and San Francisco and Boston and Pittsburgh and Austin and Nashville that are doing it. So, so yes, there may be a backlash, but, but I think, you know, over the course of the next decade or two, we'll find our way out of it. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll finally realize that this combination of technology and innovation in cities is what drives our economy and, and we'll make it better.
0: Perfect. Richard Florida, his new book is The New Urban Crisis, How Our Cities Are Increasing Equality, Deepening Segregation, and Failing the Middle Class. It's available now. Uh, Thank you very much, Richard. This uh, this has been great. It's
1: a pleasure. And let's keep talking about these issues, which are really uh, the critical issues for our country and the world. So thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for joining us.